So today, what I'm going to do is talk about the way I have learned to actually read the Bible. I've gone through a, a chronological grid to look at the Bible through, how the pieces fit together, like the 2,000 Abraham, 1,500 Moses, 1,000 David and Saul, 722 Israel's deported to Assyria, and 586 Judah is deported to Babylon. Around 500 they return under Nehemiah. So those are some blocks of dates along with a couple of specific dates around which the whole Old Testament's organized. And then there's eras. You've got the era of Abraham and his family, era of slavery in Egypt, era of self-governance under the judges, and the monarchy under the kings, and then the uh, captivity period and 400 years of silence where there's no uh, word from God through the prophets and then Jesus and the, and the church age after the Holy Spirit descends. So we've talked about that. We've talked about the map where the bug is watching the poor little guy drown in the fishing net as a way of kind of understanding the geography and have a little model in your head about the geography of the Middle East. And when we've talked about the paradoxes in the Bible, the proper starting place in the Bible is that God is God. He's the I Am. He himself is paradoxical. And so we should not be surprised when there's paradoxical things all around us. We can't actually understand holy, but because we believe God and what God tells us, we can hold those paradoxes with faith instead of trying to explain them and end up uh, running ourselves in a circle. So what I'm going to do is talk about the way I have learned to actually read the Bible. It actually has very broad application to kind of how I do everything these days because once you learn how to think in a way that includes context, you can apply it to anything. So it's a real simple approach with four steps. One is to observe, and then the second is to interpret. The third is to correlate or see context, check context, you could say. And then the fourth is to apply, observe, interpret, correlate, apply. Now this little step here has an immense power. Everybody uses all four of these things, but research has shown and observation validates that the vast majority of humanity does not use this in this order. So what marketing research has found, and I got this out of a book called The Right Brain Way, what marketing research has found is that people make their purchasing decisions with their right brain and then they rationalize them with their left brain. So your right brain is the seat of emotions. It's where there's patterns and there's feelings, there's stories from your past. One of the examples that I recall is they asked this guy, why did you buy this TV? It was like a department store, Macy's or something like that. He said, really great price. And then in the course of the interview, they kept like, could you buy it somewhere else cheaper? Well, yes, of course. And then they keep going into these uh, interviews, and they do these interviews somehow where they're visualizing things. They, they figured out how to kind of tap into the right brain, you know, while they're doing this. They have these 90-minute 90 to 100, uh, 90 interviews, and they ask the person, how long did this take? They think it's 10 or 15 minutes. But anyway, they're, they're going through this, and what they discover is actually the reason they go to that department store is because of the way they're treated. Because when they go to the department store, they feel like they're important, that they're valued, that their presence there is appreciated. And actually, they know they can buy it cheaper somewhere else. But when you first ask them, they say, well, because it was cheap. Because they're rationalizing a behavior that they hadn't really thought about. All of us do this to varying extents. 
one of the reasons why we have to do this is because using your left brain, which is the logic processing part, kind of zaps all your energy and makes it where you can't really pay attention hardly anything else. So this is from Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a book some experimental psychologists wrote, and they were observing these differences. In Thinking Fast and Slow, what they discovered is if you have someone doing algebra problems, your pupils actually dilate and your brain starts sapping energy out of your body. If, if they give people like glucose boosts while they're doing these math marathons, they actually improve their performance because it's tiring to do algebra. It's hard to do algebra. Can I hear an amen? For it's really hard. I mean, you can't really sort of do three or four things while you're doing algebra. You just can't do it because it requires immense focus and it makes you tired to do that. So. Somewhat by necessity, we use our right brains to do this all the time because we're always responding to patterns going around us. We're limited creatures with a limited amount of calories we can burn, a limited amount of brain power. So this right brain has this massive capability just to clip a story onto stuff and make an explanation that we never even thought about. So you have to do that just because of limitations. Well, what happens then is you live your life with all these stories that are uninformed with reality. And that can be very destructive. So, what I've discovered is, and I think what logic tells you would happen is, as you learn to actually see what's real, this is the part everybody skips. Observe. This is the part we skip. As you see what reality actually is and start embracing it, make an interpretation of, okay, does that make sense? Does it make sense with respect to how everything else works? Keep going through that loop until things actually make sense and then apply that. Well, now you're actually living in reality instead of living in these stories that you have in your head. And you can't help but just put a story on things when you see something. You can't help it. Your, your mind automatically does that. But if you know your mind automatically does that, you can stop and say, okay, I've got that story, but is it true? And then you can actually go through this step. Well, so although this has a lot broader application, what I'm going to talk about today is how you do it with the Bible. So if we have time, I'm going to try to go through three examples. So the first example is intended to show how not this approach Western Christian history has been. I don't know about Eastern Christian history because I don't know that much about it, but I, I can speak for the West. So I started at one point going through and reading the great awakening preachers. I thought it would be a, you know educational and inspirational exercise. And I started with the sermon, the very famous Great Awakening sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so I read this sermon, and it more or less, it's, somebody correct me if you think there's a better characterization, but more or less he says that the relationship between humanity and God is kind of like somebody with a bunch of little critters in their hand sitting over a raging fire deciding when to just drop them in so they fry. Well, you know. I mean, there's, there's certainly a sense in which the Bible says that you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and there's a separation and we're all self-destructive and so forth. And so I wonder, well, where, where does he get that from the Bible? I look at the proof text. And the proof text was, their foot shall slide in due time. 
Well, that's odd. That doesn't say anything about fire or hell. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. Turn to it, if you will. Chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, verse 35. So it says there, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip or slide in due time. So slip and slide is biblical too. (laughs) For the day of their calamity is at hand and, and the things to come hasten upon them. So you say, well, all right, well, okay, vengeance... Vengeance, certainly God would only execute vengeance on people he doesn't like. And pay people back, okay, well, it sounds like people he doesn't like. Their foot shall slide in due time, okay, sliding like going into a fire, maybe that's it. Calamity, well, certainly that would only go, okay, so maybe it works. So if you start with, I already know the story I want to tell, and I'm looking for a verse to fit it, it probably works okay. But what if you actually look and say, well, what does the verse say? And what does it mean? And then you go and say, does it fit the context surrounding it? Which is what correlate is. Well, look at the next verse. For the Lord will judge who? His people. Well, uh uh-oh. The Lord will judge His people. Well, this this suddenly isn't like this handful of people God doesn't like and He's going to toast them all. Now, He's talking about His people. Well, wait a minute. So, well, well, do you execute vengeance and payback on somebody that's your people? Well... Then you start zooming out further and you realize that Deuteronomy is God's message to his people right before they go into the promised land. Duo, two, duet, two. It's uh, Latin and it means the second time, the second giving of the law. So you had Leviticus, the first giving of the law. Those people didn't pay attention to it. And they got recompensed for that. What was the recompense for the people who wouldn't do what God told them to do? Yeah, they, got, they, didn't get the, they didn't get the reward of the inheritance. And he said, okay, if you want it your own way, you'll have it your own way. You get to stay in the desert for 40 years. And, and during the 40 years, he fed them, and he made it where the clothes didn't wear out, and he protected them. So it's like, almost like welfare. They got to go to Arizona and retire, essentially. But the way, the, the way God describes that is, you wasted an amazing opportunity to build a nation. Because I'm, I'm not going to let somebody build a nation that's not willing to, to be a mission-oriented. So they got recompensed. His vengeance was poured out on them. Why? Because they wouldn't do what they said they were going to do, and they got the consequences of their actions. Does that mean he didn't like them anymore? Does that mean he's holding them over a fire? <laughs> Ooh, I get to burn the... Well, no, it means he's a loving father. He took them to the woodshed and wore them out. That's what it means, okay? Because I'm not going to let you be self-destructive. That's what this is talking about. And then look on. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. You know, if you want to be cruel to a kid, you know what you do? Let them have everything they want. And teach them and enable them to believe that the world revolves around them. And then put them out into the world with that mentality. With all the other brats that think the world that revolve around them. And then watch Lord of the Flies happen. Okay, That's how to be cruel to a kid. The best thing you can do a kid is execute vengeance and recompense on them when they defy you. Because then you're teaching them how the world really works. And you're judging your people. And you're having compassion on them. And then he goes on and says, when he sees their power is gone and there's no one remaining. And so he goes on. And if you put it in the overall context of what's happening here, he's telling the people of Israel, look, you're going to mess up. Your foot will slide in due time. You're going to make a mistake. 
And when you make a mistake, you're going to bear the consequences of that mistake. But I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going to let you go through those bad times, but I'm never going to forsake you. The reason I'm going to let your enemies come in and take you is because you've got to learn your lesson. I'm having compassion on you. And you know those people who come in and, and, and abuse you? They're going to get theirs too. Don't worry about that either. It's the exact opposite of the way the verse was used in that sermon. And I started kind of flipping through. Was this common? Yes. It's very common. And then I started thinking about this. Is this what I grew up with? Pretty much. It pretty much is. And I started thinking about, well, do I see this around me? Well, yeah, pretty much. This is, this is I do a lot of stuff in politics, you know. This is pretty much how political cam- campaigns work. Roll through everything you've ever said, pull one thing out, twist it into something opposite of what you meant, take it out of context, and then hammer you with it. You know, it's done every day, and all sides do it. And it's, it's abusive. But you know what? It works because it fits the story. And what you're trying to do is create a story, a brand for people. That you can say, you know, this person is a horrible person. And here's this story that backs up the horrible, that they're a horrible person. Here's this information. We're having this done to our industry. Have you noticed? We save the whales. What we produce is 100% organic, biodegradable, plant-based. Uh, the world has come out of poverty because of the oil and gas business. We're the, we're the most eco-friendly thing that's ever happened to the planet. When we have these horrible mistakes that happen in the Gulf of Mexico, the fish have a riotous party because they eat the stuff. You know, the bacteria go, yay, there's more food, and they start eating it, and there's more fish food because the, it's plant-based. And we're being villainized as killing the earth because there's this story and all this information coming into the story and people just believe it because they don't think about it. It happens every day. Well, the way to avoid that is to start with what does it say? And this is unwelcome to most of us. Why do we not like to start with what does it say? Well, first of all, you have to think, which is hard. You have to do some algebra. It might go against our story. Because if I'm going to actually listen to you and hear what you have to say, what you have to say might not fit my story, which is very inconvenient and very uncomfortable. And so now when you're going to listen to God, it's particularly uncomfortable because he's never wrong. At least the other person might be wrong and you might win. But now you're listening to God, you know he's always going to be right. It's very uncomfortable, isn't it? Okay. So let me take you to Galatians chapter 2. It's one of my favorite ones. And after I learned to do this, I got to uh, practice it on this passage. So I'm just going to kind of go through with you uh, how it came to be. All right. So chapter 2, verse 17. Now Galatians, of course, is written by Paul to these Greeks living in Turkey, an area of Turkey called Galatia. And it's a church that he planted. And it starts with uh, verse 6, 1 verse 6. I marvel you're turning away so soon from him who called you the grace of Christ. So this is a woodshed letter. You guys are being idiots. That's, that's the overall context here. So you go to 2.17 and it says, But if while we seek to be justified with, by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners as Christ, therefore a minister of sin. Okay, so you start with that and you say, Well, is it good or bad to be justified by Christ? Good. Don't you think it's good? Yeah, it's a good thing to be justified by Christ. And what does it mean to be justified? Okay, that'd be another thing. What does it mean to be justified? Well, you can go look at that. and It, it means like left justify, right justify, center justify. It means that you're, you're okay with that standard. Okay, so how do you get okay with God's standard? 
Well, through believing in Christ, right? Because Christ paid for all of our crimes and we get to actually say, by faith, I'll appropriate your payment for my crimes, my crimes against humanity. Okay, so that's how we adjust. So if we seek to be justified by Christ, is it a good thing to seek to be justified by Christ? Okay, of course it is. It's a good thing to be seek to be justified by Christ. Uh, we, we ourselves are also found sinners. So now it starts to get a little hard to understand because we're seeking to be justified by Christ and found sinners. But, okay, if you're seeking to be justified by Christ and you realize, gosh, I'm a sinner, I need to be justified, that sounds good. Okay, so that's okay. And then you say, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? So then the sentence would be saying, if you're seeking to be justified, you find you're a sinner, you believe in Jesus, then that raises a question, is, G- is Jesus a minister of sin? And it doesn't make any sense. Okay, so I started looking at this and saying, I, I can't understand wh- what, if this, then that. So it'd be like saying, if you go out on a bicycle and have a nice ride, does that mean you don't like Disneyland? It's just two things don't have anything to they don't have anything to do with each other. Non sequitur. Well, thank you. The Latin there is uh, that's just what I was going to say. <laughs> so so then, well, what in the world is he talking about? So you start zooming out. So observe, interpret, correlate. Okay, observe. I observe, I interpreted, I correlated, and it didn't make any sense. Because I'm, I'm, does this fit? If, then, therefore, it doesn't fit. Just that one sentence doesn't fit. So then, well, let's look at the context of what's being saying, this, what's being talked about here. Well, you start zooming out here and go up to verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I, this is Paul speaking, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men but came before James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all the following. So now you have a quote, a soliloquy. It's not a soliloquy. It's a speech by... By Paul, and he says, if you being a Jew, you, Peter, I'm talking to you, Peter. Me, Paul, I'm talking to you, baby. If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews, Peter? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith, Peter. In Christ, and not by the works of the law. Peter! For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we, you and me, Peter, seek to be justified by Christ, we were found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. So this is Paul, this is not, this is not Paul speaking to like all of you people out there who are seeking to be justified. This is Paul speaking to Peter, seeking to be justified. Now, is Peter a believer? Does he need to seek to be justified? No. No. Why? He's already been justified. Okay, so now, if you're already justified, is it a wise thing to seek to be justified? It's not. 
It's not a good thing to seek to be justified if you're already justified. Let's just say that I came to Andrew. And I said, Andrew, Andrew, please, I've got to be declared innocent. What would you say, Andrew? Like, what are you accused of, right? What, what, what crime did you get charged with? Well, I hadn't, I hadn't been accused. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have any warrants out or anything. But I've got to be declared innocent. Please help me. Well, it's not a problem, right? You know, wait until like, somebody accuses you of something and you're having a warrant for your arrest and you're indicted, maybe, yeah. Wait, why don't you wait till you're indicted and then come talk to me, right? It wouldn't make any sense. You're seeking to be justified and you're already justified. Now, how is Peter seeking to be justified? What does the context tell us? Yeah, I'm going to do this Jewish law stuff. And who is he actually being seeking to be justified by? Christ? No, the religious leaders, right? And why do religious leaders always put a bunch of rules on you and say, you're not really justified unless you do this? So they get control. It's not because so you can actually be justified. It's a control mechanism. And Paul is standing up right in the middle of everybody and saying, Peter, you are wrong. And the reason he's telling this story is not to say, I'm better than Peter. The reason he's telling this story is because these people had come to these uh, Galatians and said, look, believing in Jesus is not enough. You've got to follow these rules, these Jewish rules. I mean, this is a Jewish religion, and you've got to follow the Jewish stuff. Look at all this Old Testament stuff. You know, look at all this. You can't, God didn't just throw this all away. And you've got to follow all this. It starts with circumcision. And you go back and look, and in uh, chapter 2 here, he says... Not even Titus was circumcised. When we saw the gospel for the circumcised had been committed to me as the gospel uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, Peter was glad. And he said, that was great, go do that. And then later I had to chew him out because he was being inconsistent. So Galatians, don't seek something you already have. You've already got it. And here's what happens. If somebody brings you a bunch of religious rules and says, and you have to do this, you know what you're going to do with that set of rules? Break them, because none of us can keep all the rules. And when you do, that means somebody's going to call and say, oh, you're not righteous anymore. You broke the rule, so you're no longer righteous. And what they're going to be saying is, Jesus isn't enough. So now Jesus is a minister of sin. He wasn't enough. He couldn't do the job. You have to add to it with your rule following. And you know what that is? That's stupid. Verse 18, if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. If you want to put these rules together, start following the rules, and you break the rules, you know what? who the problem is? You. Because you made all these stupid rules. And we can't keep the rules. That's why, that's why we needed Jesus in the first place. That's why He had to come to earth. So stop being stupid, you idiots. <laughs> Paraphrase, more like. <laughs> Okay, so how can you see that? Well, first of all, you observe and then you interpret and then you correlate and you say, well, God, this doesn't make any sense. What's, it, what's he saying? And you start zooming out and looking for, what, how, how could I interpret this in a way that actually did make sense? And then you keep going through this until, hey, you know what, I think I found a way that this makes sense. It all fits together. There's a person writing a letter to real people with a message and this sentence fits in that overall message. Instead of suddenly just being this one-off thing that plucks out that doesn't fit in and doesn't make any sense. By the way, this verse, I think, is the key to understanding Galatians. If you understand 2.17, you get the book. Don't seek to add to what Jesus did for us by plopping religious rules on top of it. 
Don't do it. I mean, if you want to follow those things, it's fine. It's, it's okay to like, go to church every Sunday. That's good. But if you go to church every Sunday because you have to in order to add to the, what Jesus did, you're just killing yourself. Go because it's a way to stir one another up to love and good works, which is why the Bible tells us to go. All right, so let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. So my experience with Hebrews chapter 10 is this was one of the verses that was used to dangle me over the fire while I was growing up. So I was taught that God saved me through Jesus Christ. And then he set some proctors to watch over me. And every time I made a mistake, they uh, took my salvation away from me. And then if I said I was sorry, they'd give it back. That's, that's what I was taught. Now that's very, very useful for getting people to obey your rules for a while until they grow up and get tired of it and then leave the faith or just get massively legalistic. Those are the two things those are good for. But this verse was used to propagate that. This was one of the main verses. So it's Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. That sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? If we sin, anybody here ever sin? Willfully. Yeah, okay. So far we're not doing too good. After we know better. All right, now we're really in trouble. There's no longer a sacrifice for sin. So Jesus is, it just doesn't work anymore. Jesus' sacrifice is gone for you if you sin. And by the way, here are the sins. Yeah, that's what they did to me. Well, man. And how do we know that that's Jesus' sacrifice? Because it's fearful judgment with indignation and fire. That's hell, obviously, right? Has to be. So, guess we can stop now. We're all done for. We're all going to hell. Bye. <laughs> so, that's, there's your interpretation. And it's because we interpret for We go with uh, what do we want it to say, and then we interpret something. You know, what verse can I use to support that you have to follow my rules? Here's a verse where you have to follow my rules, and I observe that it works. You, you have to follow my story. So, my interpretation. Uh, works for my story, and move along here. We don't need to worry about that. Well, let's, let's apply this, though. We observe. Kind of sounds scary. We interpret. Okay, we're all going to hell. And then correlate. Well, does that make sense? Well, let's see. Verse 23, let's just move up just a few verses. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I thought he was unfaithful because he's waiting on us to be faithful. Who's faithful? I thought it's us that's supposed to be faithful, not Jesus. Well, this says Jesus is faithful. So now we have a little bit of a conflict with our hypothesis. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as it is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. That's the go to church verse that they preached on in a different sermon without reading this other verse and now without connecting them. So we've got all the people going to church are going to hell. <laughs> so now I really have a correlation problem and so much more as you see the day, the judgment day approaching. Man, now I'm really messed up. What am I, I going to do? Um, so let's see, let's go on. Anyone who is, verse 28, anyone who's rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay, so the way Mosaic law worked is if you steal something, two, you have a trial, two people come and say, yeah, he stole it. And if you won't pay it back, you die. 
It's real simple. Very, very inexpensive justice system that they have. Okay, so of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing. So in our hypothesis, you were sanctified, now you're not anymore. And insulted the spirits of grace. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Ooh, have you ever heard that before? That's the Deuteronomy 30. Yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, Jonathan Edwards. Sir. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Oh my gosh, that's the God is merciful to His people verse. So now all of a sudden my context is, this is something about God being merciful to me. Whoa, amazing. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. How can it be fearful to fall into the hands of somebody that's faithful who wants my best interest? How's that possible? But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions as those who were treated this way. So these are people who lost their possessions and said, Yahoo, we got to suffer for Jesus. That's that's who he's talking about here. For you had compassion on me and my chains. So he knows these people and these people were willing to associate with Paul who was arrested as a Roman criminal and say, I stand with him. So these people are courageous and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Why would someone say, I'm really glad I lost all my possessions? Knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. So they have something in heaven that they have right now that's enduring. Well, how can it be enduring if it's going to be taken away if you sin willfully? It's so confusing. For you need endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Do not cast away your confidence which has great reward. Oh, well this is talking about what happens to me consequentially. Well, that that must mean that this isn't talking about Jesus' sacrifice. Well, does this chapter say anything else about sacrifice? Well, I, I roll back chapter 10 verse 1. The law, having a shadow of the things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices offer continually year by year make things perfect. He's saying that the Levitical sacrifices don't make you just. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there's a reminder of sin every year. It's just a reminder. It doesn't actually take them away. Verse 5, therefore when he came into the world he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. That's Jesus speaking. I didn't come to be a Levitical sacrifice. And he goes on and on. The Levitical sacrifices don't make you whole. Jesus' sacrifice once and for all makes you whole. Well, so what he's talking about here, if you put it in context, is, look, guys, and if you, put, if you go look at Hebrews as a whole, he's talking to people who lost their possessions and were glad, for heaven's sakes. And he's saying this. He's saying, look, if you go back and start following the religious rules and say, I can sin willfully, and then I can go and do my sheep sacrifice thing, and that makes me okay. You're totally missing the boat. Because what you're doing is saying, I have to add to what Jesus did. You're trampling Jesus' sacrifice underfoot with your own activities. And when you do that, you're taking the reward God wants to give you, and you're throwing it away. And you're going to get the same judgment that's going to consume the adversaries. And you look all through the Bible, and judgment is just fire. And adversaries it consumes, and his people it refines. And then all of a sudden it fits. It fits everything except one thing. And that's my story that something's wrong with you and I'm okay. Which was what all this was set up to support. Because you know why? The rules that I made for you that says that you're going to hell, 
Those are all rules that are easy for me to follow. Or at least pretend that I'm following. I don't actually follow them, but I can fool you. And so, I'm okay and you're not. What a happy world it is when I'm in control of you. And the Bible's saying, you know, you know that living life that way, that's, that's hell on earth. If you want to try to control everything around you, you just brought hell into your earth. Fiery indignation is yours now. Because we've all tried that, hadn't we? It doesn't work worth a darn, does it? And so now we go through and we observe, we interpret, we correlate. And now suddenly it has a lesson for us. And it says, look, throw your story aside. Listen to me, God speaking. Listen to me and I will make your life amazing. I will make your life rewarding, fulfilling, incredible. But it starts with you setting aside your own little story and your own little rules and all your self-focus. And if you'll listen to me, I'll help you serve others. And that's when you'll find yourself. It's part of the Bible story. And we say, well, that's great, but it doesn't feel very good, so I'll just try something else because we're human. But we don't have to follow that path of least resistance. We have the opportunity to actually learn this. It's hard. It'll make your pupils dilate. You know, you can't do a bunch of things at once and do this. But as we do this, and you can, you can actually do this with just the world. Just observe the way the world works. Interpret what's going on. Correlate with how it fits and apply. Because God made the world to be a cause-effect place that works a certain way. Okay? So what I've found is this is like the, one of the most transformational and liberating lessons I ever learned. I learned it at this church. It's one of the reasons I, I love this place so much and appreciate it because it's given me tools to set me free from a life of frustration and futility and live a life of meaning and reality sometimes. <laughs> God, thanks for your word for giving us this amazing opportunity to exercise this choosing ability you gave us and actually peep into understanding what you've told us so we can apply it to great reward instead of our own self-destruction. And I pray that you would just you know, empower us to become better every day at observing what is and following what is and learning that when we do that, set aside self and allow you to work through us that we actually become everything that you made us to be and get fulfillment. In Jesus' name, amen.